You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to the last book panel uh, and PPE workshop of the semester. Uh, Pete Becky uh, unfortunately can't be here today. He's traveling and lecturing in Germany. Is his um, regret in not being able to be here. Uh, so you get me introducing everyone instead. Um, this book panel is on political capitalism, how economic and political power is made and maintained, a book by Randy Holcomb at Cambridge University Press. It's in the series that Pete and Timur Curran edit, uh, the Cambridge Studies and Economics Choice in Society, and we're really happy to have Randy here to talk about his new book. Um, in addition to Randy discussing the book, we have two panelists, Josh Hall, the Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for Free Enterprise at West Virginia University, and Chris Coyne, the Associate Professor of Economics and Director of Graduate Studies for the Department of Economics at George Mason University, and our Associate Director for the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. Uh, Matt Mitchell was uh, also planned to talk today, but he couldn't make it, um, so I have some of his comments that I'll provide, and the full comments will be available on audio for the Hayek Program podcast. Matt Mitchell is a senior research fellow and director of the Equity Initiative at Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, and Randy is the DeVoe Moore Professor of Economics at Florida State University. He's the author of 15 books and more than 150 articles published in academic and professional journals. And his primary research areas are public finance and the economic analysis of public policy issues. Uh, thanks again for coming. Thanks, guys, for coming to talk about the book. And I'll turn it over to you, Randy. Thank you very much. I appreciate the introduction. I'm delighted to be here at George Mason University. I've been at Florida State University for a long time. Uh, this is my 31st year teaching there. Wow, it seems like a long time, doesn't it? <coughs> um, and, uh, <coughs> and I love it there. I have great colleagues and a very congenial department. But really, I feel like my intellectual colleagues are more here at George Mason uh, and so I'm delighted to have an opportunity to talk about my book uh, here at George Mason, uh, which is Political Capitalism, uh, How Economic and Political Power is Made and Maintained. I have uh, slides here, <coughs> and I didn't make up these slides specifically for this talk. They actually would be good for an hour talk, but I think I'm only supposed to talk for 20 to 25 minutes. So I'm going to breeze through these, and I'm really not you, so you've you got to look quick if you want to see all the slides. <laughs> <coughs> but, um, but there are some ideas that I'm going to want to uh, uh, emphasize uh, on the slides. So uh, we'll get right to it. Political capitalism is an economic and political system in which the economic and political elite cooperate for their mutual benefit. Profitability of business is determined by political connections rather than the satisfaction of consumer preferences. And uh, th this is widely recognized. People have been talking about corporate, corporatism, favoritism, cronyism, and so forth. So the, the symptoms of political capitalism are widely recognized, but the causes aren't really understood. So what I try to do in this book is to build a theory of political capitalism, and it's really built on a foundation of theories that are already well-developed and well-accepted. So I'm really taking some existing theories here and putting them together, using them as building blocks to build a theory of political capitalism. Uh, now, um, at the beginning of the book, I talk about viewing political capitalism as a distinct economic system. Uh, and I have a little bit about um, comparative economic systems as it was taught in the, in the 20th century. Uh, I think I'm not going to talk about that at any great length, but to say that the way that we tended to view things in the 20th century, that economic systems and political systems were two independent things. Uh, that in economic systems, systems went from capitalism to socialism. Political systems went from dictatorship to democracy. You could have any combination of economic and political systems. Uh, and as we move into the 21st century, we don't even think about 
things that, that way anymore. After the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, well, really the market system is the economic system we talk about with varying degrees of interference with markets, so government interference with markets. And that old 20th century framework of, of uh, comparative economic systems have sort of faded by the, the wayside. Um, I have a lot of quotations in here, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably uh, breeze through, through them pretty quickly. But as I said before, political capitalism, systems widely recognized. Uh, in the Communist Manifesto, you know, Marx and Engels say the executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing uh, the affairs uh, of the whole bourgeoisie. Uh, and uh, a more uh, uh, popular uh, statement of that, this is Tom Morello, who is a guitarist for Rage Against the Machine, uh, in an interview in Guitar World, said uh, government basically has one function, that's to serve the interests uh, of the people who own the country. Uh, and um, uh, my book came out before the recent uh, publication of, of Murray Rothbard's uh, book on the progressive era. Uh, but I've got a couple of quotes from Rothbard, too. I don't know how many instances we'll find that, that uh, Karl Marx and Murray Rothbard will be in agreement on things, uh, but uh, this is a quotation from Rothbard's book, The Progressive Era. <coughs> Here's another quotation from, uh, uh, from Rothbard. Um, the power was shifted out of the hands of the masses into the hands of the minority elite of technocrats and upper-income uh, businessmen, describing... Uh, political capitalism there. Uh, I have a lot of quotes from uh, Joseph Stiglitz on the political left. Um, I, I kind of like this one. You know, it's one thing to win a fair game. It's quite another to be able to write the rules of the game and write them in ways that enhance one's prospects of winning. And it's even worse when you can choose your own referees. Uh, so Stiglitz I tend to think of as on the political left. But in a book that came out about the same time by um, <coughs> David Stockman, uh, the Great Deformation, um, he has similar views. Like I say, the symptoms of political capitalism are widely recognized from political left uh, to political right. Um, it, uh, uh, another quote by, by uh, uh, Stiglitz, Stockman. I mean, it's, it's interesting if you read those two books that until you get toward the end of the book where they say, here's what we should do about it, it's, they're almost interchangeable. You know, Stockman says, our government is no longer a system of democratic choice in governance. It's a tyranny of incumbency and money politics. The gangs of crony capitalism will fight tooth and nail to preserve their slice of an imperiled pie, thereby disenfranchising even further ordinary taxpayers and citizens who have uh, no voice in the Washington policy auctions. Um, so uh, from political left to political right, we see a long history of people recognizing the, the power uh, of uh, elites. Uh, we can talk about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the elite and the masses. More recently, the Occupy Wall Street movement, the 1% and the 99%. Um, so the, the symptoms are widely recognized. And what I try to do in this book is to put together a theory of political capitalism. And a couple of the main building blocks are elite theory from sociology and political science and public choice theory uh, where uh, uh, the elite theory says here's who benefits from the system and public choice theory says here's how they benefit. And public choice, you know, we talk about rent seekers. Some people get rents, other people pay the costs and so forth. But we really don't tend to look at it in public choice as there's a systematic group of people who always benefit and another group that systematically bears a cost. And maybe that's because we tend to look at things from an individualistic perspective. And here's a quotation from the Calculus of Consent. Uh, Buchanan and Tulloch reject any theory or conception of the collectivity which embodies the exploitation of a ruled by a ruling class. But that's what political capitalism is. Uh, this includes the Marxist vision which incorporates the polity as one means through which the economically dominant group imposes its will on the downtrodden. But in fact, that's what we, uh, that's what we see happen. Uh, so um, el elite theory is uh, developed mostly through in sociology and political science 
but there's a solid economic foundation for elite theory. Uh, and I draw on Mansur Olson talking about how smaller groups are better able to organize. Uh, and I really emphasize the Coase theorem as a theoretical foundation for elite theory. That uh, the Coase theorem, um, well, one way of looking at the Coase theorem is in the absence of transaction costs, uh, resources are allocated to their highest valued use. And why are they allocated to their highest valued use? Because whoever values them the most is able to buy them, right, in the absence of transaction costs. But the key thing there is that transaction costs. Some people face high transaction costs in the political process. They're unable to bargain. Other people face low transaction costs. So we know about, the, about log rolling in the legislature. We know about vote trading. We know about lobbyists interacting with legislators. But for most of us here, can you do that? Can you enter into this bargaining process? No. Why? Because you face high transaction costs. Some people, like people in the legislature, well-connected lobbyists, uh, people who are able to, to buy their, their way in because of, uh, uh, they're a part of the economic elite, those people face low transaction costs. They can bargain in order to get results that maximize the value of the resources to the people who are in the low transaction cost group. The people in the high transaction cost group, they're the people who end up bearing the cost. And, and that's no different from if we think in the Coase's original article about externalities, right? So transaction costs are low, people bargain to allocate resources uh, efficiently. When transaction costs are high, that's when externalities generated by some people can impose costs on others. So it's just a simple application of the Coase theorem provides a solid economic foundation for uh, elite theory. So we have the bourgeoisie, the elite, the 1%. Those are the people in the low transaction costs. Those are the fat cats. And, and we have the proletariat, the masses, the 99%. Th those are the people in the high transaction cost group. right? So the people in the low transaction cost group are able to bargain to systematically uh, create outcomes uh, that are, are favorable to themselves. Um, <coughs> For one thing, to, to mention about the Coase theorem uh, as supporting elite theory, right? So I'm using the Coase theorem as a support for, uh, for elite theory. And I'm sorry Matt Mitchell's not here. He did have some comments. Actually, he emailed the comments to me ahead of time, so I saw the comments. Uh, and one comment that Matt made was that uh, really I'm talking about politics as exchange, like Buchanan talked about it. Well, I am talking about politics as exchange, but not exactly like Buchanan talked about it because Buchanan views that everybody's in the low transaction cost group when he talks about politics as exchange. Hey, the politics works like, like markets. Uh, but when we uh, couple the Coase theorem with that, this politics as exchange, oh, some people are in a high transaction cost group. They end up bearing the costs of the policies that are produced by the political and economic elite. Uh, and I um, uh, also talk a, a little bit about uh, rent-seeking uh, in the book. I don't have a slide for that. But um, one thing I want to emphasize in the theory of rent-seeking, if you think about it in the context of, of political capitalism, a lot of rent-seeking papers um, depict rent-seeking uh, as a, some kind of a competition. So uh, people compete, they bid for rents, or they're competing to try to get rents, and in one form of the rent-seeking model, all of the rents end up dissipated in rent-seeking losses. And in fact, if you read Ann Kruger's original article, she draws that exact conclusion, you know, that the, we estimate the, the, uh, the rent-seeking losses as, as uh, equal to the value of, of the rents. Uh, but uh, these rent-seeking models they, they look at the competition of people seeking rents, but they don't consider the people who are creating the rents. And if you look at the incentives of people who create the rents, rent creators have no incentive to create rents uh, that are all going to be dissipated. If they're going to create rents, they, they want to have some benefit for themselves. So there's every incentive for the people who create rents to create a barrier to entry to limit rent-seeking competition because uh, the more of those rents that are left to capture, 
the more can be divided between the political and economic elite. So I think at least if we look at these models of, of rent dissipation, especially complete rent dissipation, they way overestimate the amount of rent dissipation because they don't consider the incentives of the people who create the rents. People who create rents only have an incentive to do that if they're going to get some benefit, and they can only do that if the rents aren't dissipated so that there's something, uh, <coughs> something left for them to gain. So I do talk about that uh, uh, in the book uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, and uh, let me mention an, another thing uh, in this uh, maybe kind of a minor point, but maybe of interest to, uh, to this group. Um, uh, Gordon Tullock has, among many of his great articles, The Transitional Gains Trap uh, has this uh, nice article about transitional gains. And eventually, uh, and the gains end up being capitalized into assets that are <coughs> that are associated with the gain, and so you end up earning a normal rate of return after that. Uh, and I might throw in the rents don't disappear; the rents are still there. They're just capitalized into into some assets. And and Tullock, when he writes about this, talks about it like it's a policy mistake. This is a mistake, you know. And if we recognize this, maybe we can keep from making these kind of mistakes uh, again. But uh, if you combine Tullock's idea of transitional gains with Fred McChesney's idea of rent extraction, you see it's not a mistake. These transitional gains are not created as a mistake. What they do is they capitalize the value of the rents into some asset, and it, the, uh, politics is required to keep the, the, uh, those rents in play. Uh, and so uh, the transitional gains are created specifically so that politicians can extract rents later from the people who own those assets. So um, this theory of political capitalism um, suggests, well, those transitional gains are not a mistake. They're deliberately created so that later on politicians can uh, engage in rent extraction uh, for the people who who got the rents. And there, there, there are several reasons for thinking along those lines. And one I'll, one I'll just mention is if you want to extract rents, you need to have some organized group that you can extract them from, right? And by the fact that a group was able to organize to get the transitional gains, there's already a well-defined group there that you can go after in order to try to uh, to extract rents. So uh, so anyways, I'd, I'd throw that in. I, I think it's kind of a minor point in the book, but it is in the book, but I throw that in because I think it would be of more uh, of, of interest to um, uh, people in this audience. Now, um, the, this theory of political capitalism tells us that there's a discontinuity in political power that we don't see in, in uh, uh, economic power. Um, and uh, that if we think about economic power, if you have $20, you got twice the economic power of somebody with $10. If you got $10 million, you got 10 times the economic power of somebody with a million dollars. And when you go into Starbucks with your $5 to get a cup of coffee, I guess that's right, I never go into Starbucks, but <coughs> your $5 is worth just as much as Bill Gates' $5. Uh, but with political power, there's a discontinuity that some people have virtually no political power. Other people, the elite, have a lot of, of, of political power. Uh, so you know, if, if you want some more economic power, how can you get more economic power? Maybe you can build up your human capital. Maybe you can work harder. Maybe you can get a better job. Maybe you can take a second job. Maybe you can work some overtime. There are things you can do to adjust at the margin so that if you want more economic power, you can get more economic power. If you want more political power, what can you do? If you have no political power, what can you do? Well, you can contribute to political campaigns. Uh, you can volunteer. And, pro and you still have no political power. Uh, most people, the people in the masses, there's no way that they can get more political power, whereas the elite, there's a discontinuity in political power. The elite, those are the people who make public policy. So there's a discontinuity in political power that doesn't exist with, e with economic power. And uh, one manifestation of that is rational ignorance in politics. I mean, we say voters are rationally ignorant. Why are they rationally ignorant? It's because they know they don't have any po power, right? That's the reason that they, there's no incentive for them to collect up information. So that idea of rational ignorance is a byproduct of the fact that there's this discontinuity in, uh, in political power. Uh, so um, <coughs> so I, I, 
uh, on this slide, I, I, I sum up some things. I think I'm going to, in the interest of time, I, I'm, I'm not going to go through that summary stuff in too much detail. Uh, I'll mention political capitalism. It's not the welfare state. It's not big government. It's not a mixed economy. Uh, it's defined by what government does, not what, uh, uh, not how big government is. Um, and um, so what's the relationship between political capitalism and capitalism, market capitalism? In both cases, profitability, or, uh, in, uh, in both cases, is private ownership of the means of production. That's where the profitability comes from. So if you think about a mixed economy, you're sort of moving away from people controlling their own resources. But, but, in, political but in political capitalism, uh, the benefits to the elite come from the fact that they uh, own private property. The difference is profitability is not based on satisfying consumer preferences. It's based on, uh, on political uh, uh, connections. But in both cases, both are based on markets for goods and services. Uh, and um, some of the biggest proponents, of the most vocal proponents of capitalism uh, support business-friendly poli uh, policies, which ant are anti-market, anti-capitalism. Uh, uh, I, I talk a lot in the book about the progressive the ideology of progressive democracy, which enables political capitalism. I have a lot of slides on that, and I'm going to skip over um, a, a lot of those. I talk about the origins of progressivism and so forth. But one thing I want to emphasize, uh, let me skip over that too. Um, you know, democracy, we can view democracy as a way to elect the people, to choose the people who hold government power. But the way we tend to view it more commonly these days, not necessarily you and me, but most people, is democracy is a form of government where government carries out the will of the people. Uh, how, how do we know what the will of the people is? Well, it's through a democratic decision-making process. Uh, we, we find that out. <coughs> Progressivism has been redistributive from its beginning. If you go back to the late 1800s and the beginning of, of progressivism, then it was like we'll redistribute from the robber barons to ordinary people. And the, but, but the point is, from its very origins, progressivism was redistributive. From its very origins, progressivism justified benefiting some people by imposing costs on other people. And this 21st century view of democracy says that when government does that, it's carrying out the will of the people. So that uh, uh, progressive democracy provides the, the political foundation, the ideology uh, that supports uh, political capitalism. Something I touched on before, capitalists are capitalism's biggest enemies. Uh, Schumpeter says, no, he doesn't think that, that uh, capitalism can survive because the people who benefit most from capitalism aren't willing to stand up and support it. You don't get businesses coming and lobbying for free markets. You get them lobbying for protectionist policies and tax breaks and subsidies uh, and so forth. Uh, and I have a number of quotations uh, from uh, Schumpeter here, you know, that the capitalist process not only destroys its own institutional framework, but creates the conditions for another. Destruction may not be the right word after all. Perhaps I should have spoken of transformation. Now, Schumpeter's thinking of maybe a transformation from capitalism to socialism, but if we look at the way institutions develop, uh, maybe that transformation is from capitalism uh, to political capitalism. Um, no capitalism by its nature is a form or method of economic change that not only never is, but never can be stationary. So I'm asking the question, is market capitalism evolving into political capitalism? Um, and I think I'll skip over this, uh, another quotation by, by Mises. Uh, but the basic idea there is, is um, uh, Mises talking about, you know, people thought, well, if we have problems, what we need are uh, good princes and virtuous citizens, uh, which apparently we don't have, at least according to the last presidential election. You know, um, that's uh, lying Hillary uh, uh, over there uh, on the left, and behind Donald Trump here are a basket of deplorables. Uh, so we don't have the good citizens and the virtuous princes and the good citizens that, 
uh, that Mises was, was talking about. But Mises said, well, that's not the problem. I mean, the problem is institutions. Um, can we control political capitalism? And in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, but I'm, I am going to suggest to you if the problem is that it's the elite who have the power, they control public policy, that constitutional constraints may not be effective if it's the elite who are interpreting and enforcing them. Democratic oversight with rationally ignorant voters who have no power, checks and balances, that's a better route to look for because there you have some elites who are checking and balancing the power of others. Um, political capitalism, is that term descriptive? I've heard uh, some people have criticized me for using the term capitalism. Oh, it gives capitalism a bad name. But political capitalism is enabled by private ownership, just, uh, uh, just like capitalism. Uh, maybe there's a tendency for capitalism to evolve into political capitalism. And as I already said, the biggest threats to capitalism are the pro-business people who claim to be proponents of capitalism. Uh, if we want to uh, uh, try to control the system, we have to be able to understand it first. So what I've tried to do in this book is put together a theory of political capitalism so we see it as a distinct economic system. It's not a mixed economy. It's not somewhere between capitalism and socialism. Uh, it's a distinct uh, economic system. And to build up the theory of political capitalism, I've used building blocks that are already well established in the social sciences, the elite theory, public choice theory. You put those things together, and together they produce that theory of political capitalism. So um, I'm going to uh, close with that, and I guess uh, turn it over to the uh, discussants. It's, it's always tough to follow Randy, even when he's uh, speeding through uh, uh, his slides, uh, because he's, he's very clear. Uh, in his in his work, so let me begin by saying, uh, I th what a wonderful book this is. Uh, maybe I'm biased, and I think I've read probably about eighty percent of the books that Randy's written. But I would put this uh, right up there with his, my favorite book of his, the Economic Foundations of Government, uh, and probably right after that, uh, From Liberty to Democracy: uh, The Transformation of American Government, which I found at lunch is coming out in a new edition. Uh, I'm excited to see that. Uh, you know, Randy has a unique ability to be both extremely clear and extremely deep at the same uh, time. Uh, in making the case for political capitalism, he hasn't just made the case, but in doing that, I think he's written the public choice, intro to public choice book that everybody who says, hey, there is no great introduction to public choice, and maybe people are going to disagree on that. I, I think in making his case, he does a fantastic job about talking about the basics of public choice and, and frankly, also welfare uh, uh, economics and uh, the Coase uh, uh, theorem. It's, it's all basically all uh, in there because it's part of him building up the artifice of saying, hey, we basically have these, we already have these ideas. It's kind of like chocolate and peanut butter and then we get this great Reese's cup, right? Uh, we have this elite theory and we have public choice and they, they go very well uh, together. Now, what didn't crystallize to me, even though I'd read the book a couple times until he presented it, was how crucial that transaction cost argument was. I, I was thinking all about the elite theory and what he's bringing in, but really that transaction cost argument, I think, is, is the crucial second uh, piece in here. Before getting into my specific com commentary, I'd like to digress for a second, just given that the, there's a room still with graduate uh, uh, students. I think it's important to note that uh, I'm an intellectual grandchild of Randy. Uh, my dissertation advisor was Russ Sobel, who was a student of his. And so basically taking a graduate course from Russ was like taking a graduate course from Randy because it was, you know, like all good. And, and there were a lot of Randy and Russ's works. And uh, what I think it did was encourage very close reading. Because if you read a lot of those papers, um, one of my favorites is the unanimous voting rule is not the political equivalent to market exchange. If you read that paper uh, not closely, you'll just say, oh, they're talking about the unanimous voting rule, and, and I know it's equivalent to political exchange, uh, 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 equivalent to market exchange. And then you realize in going through this, they're probing 
all around this concept to try to find weaknesses or differences that can be very deep and, and important. And in that paper, if you haven't read that paper, I encourage you to do so, uh, Randy and Russ uh, take the idea of pecuniary externalities, which we know from regular markets uh, uh, are actually important to markets working, but in normal market exchange, uh, they don't misallocate resources. But in politics, pecuniary externalities, everyone has a right to be uh, one person, one vote, complain about <laughs> pecuniary externalities. If my neighbor decides, I don't care what I sell my house for, I'm gonna sell it for 10 cents on the dollar, and next time we go up and pull comps, uh, if I'm trying to sell my house, that's gonna lead to a lower price for me. I'm gonna be angry at that, and I'm not gonna let them, <laughs> uh, I wanna try to uh, put limits on what they do with their property to stop that pecuniary externality. And so what Russ and Randy show in that paper is actually the, the set of market exchanges uh, are as much larger than the set of political exchanges that can get unanimity because of the way pecuniary externalities are treated very differently. Um, this book is filled with those insights. Some are just Randy restating other, uh, using other arguments he's made in, in other papers. So if you're reading along and you see one of those footnotes, pay attention. If he's citing himself, uh, it's for a pretty good reason. And it's probably something that you probably haven't thought about in the context of the Coase theorem or whatever the, the context um, might be. Um, one of the points that I think he doesn't lay out as, as he implicitly makes the argument, um, or maybe he doesn't believe it, and we can talk about this, is because he said something in his discussion that seems to be, he, he says that uh, when you're making the point about rent creation and extraction, that, that politicians, hey, here's a group, uh, it, transitional gains are not, a, are not a accident, they're on purpose. Here's this group, I can give them some transitional gains and then I can use rent extraction to continue to, to, to extract rents from them. Um, I actually read that passage very differently. Uh, I thought, wow, this is an even more pernicious point is that I, I was assuming, well, taxi drivers aren't organized. Uh, it's unclear to me in an Olson sense why they would uh, have uh, ability to organize pre kind of medallions. Uh, and I actually viewed it as an argument for political entrepreneurship. Here's how bad it is. We can, cre we can create this group, and then after we've created it, uh, they've overcome the, 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 the cost of organizing. And then we use those that, since we've lowered the cost of organizing by creating the medallions, we can use that to extract more rents. And so we're going to get even more uh, groups and, uh, uh, through political entrepreneurship. Um, you know, with this, that background, maybe I'm too close. It's hard to find specific things to criticize about political capitalism, uh, the book, but I do have a large number of, of thoughts, extensions, because uh, in, in, in talking about this new economic uh, uh, system or categorization, um, Randy, obviously it's not the size of human action. He can't go into and expand uh, in, in considerable detail. I think first and most fundamentally, the book is about ideas. He kind of went through it very quickly with the, the progressive area, area here, but it's he's trying to convince people of this distinct idea of political capitalism and how it's different than uh, democratic capitalism or capitalism in general and how we need to break out of that two by two uh, matrix we like to think about with the, the between democracy and economic systems. Um, in doing so, he focuses our attention on the ways in which economic policy, in its implementation and practice, enhance and entrenches the, the power of elites. And any attempts to deal with the inequality and lack of opportunity created by political capitalism that doesn't deal with that fundamental issue that there's a low transactions cost group that has power and a high transaction cost group that doesn't um, seems to be doomed to fail. In fact, at many points in the book and, in, and certainly in his talk here, Randy's analysis um, points to the fact that a failure act to do so actually might often makes things worse, as in the case of uh, many progressive era reforms that seem to 
uh, even though uh, they're facially in favor of the masses, actually entrenched uh, uh, political power and the power of um, big business. Um, and this is most clear, obviously, in his discussion of progressivism, but it, uh, I think it spills over to lots of other uh, uh, topics from uh, the bank bailouts and the Great Recession and, and lots of other topics. He also talks a lot about the ideas of economists, and that's who he's speaking to in, in, in the book uh, in, in many ways. Otherwise, he wouldn't probably talk about welfare economics uh, so much. I'd like to give a moment, though, to say why I'm skeptical. Uh, I, I applaud him for making this, but I'm very skeptical that uh, our profession will do much uh, with this. Uh, and part of the reason is, I think, even though comparative systems has declined, will a new categorization kind of save economists interested? I'm not very sure. Maybe it'll have more play in political science. Hey, some economists are listening to us with an elite theory or sociology, which has a lot to say about elites and groups. But let me read the la uh, a, a random s selection of recent NDR working papers in H0. So that's public economics. Prescription drug monitoring programs, opioid abuse and crime. Do parents know best the short and long run effects of attending the schools that parents prefer? Guns and violence, the enduring impact of crack cocaine markets on young black males. The impact of a high school curriculum on confidence, academic success, and um, physical well-being of university students. The effects of rent control expansion on tenants, landlords, and inequality, evidence from San Francisco. Do sp school spending cuts matter? Evidence from the Great Recession. What do we do in graduate school and in the journals? They're looking at specific interventions and looking at with the tools of modern economics for causality. But they're all around the narrow range of that particular intervention. They might be able to tell us whether a particular public policy improves, our, improves somehow our health outcome or leads to more violence or degrades uh, judicial institutions. But what they do not and cannot do is tell us anything about whether the intervention itself is good for the political and economic system as a whole. And in fact, I think just as Randy thought the ideas of progressivism often made things worse by giving cover to further uh, capture by the elites, I think much of economists' work not for any sort of malice or anything, but because you were so narrowly focused on a small little thing gives cover to further elite capture. Um, and as Randy points out in the book, a work that, that economists have not grappled uh, enough with is Lipsy and Lancaster's work on the theory of the second best. And I think many of these interventions, because we're so narrowly focused, because we need a regression discontinuity to decide, or a diff and diff, or whatever it might be, we're losing the, the forest for the, the, the shrub, as it were. It's important to note that m many of the economists that Randy started off with in his talk, arguing about the 1% inequality or political capitalism, are doing so in books and are long since tenured or don't need that. As a discipline, economists contribute to a culture of mild interventions through journal articles, each that makes something better on the margin but might make our overall uh, system uh, work by furthering bureaucracy um, through these targeted interventions. Uh, power, prestige, and advancement in the economic prevention, given its nature, cannot, but cannot help but contribute to political capitalism because the narrow focus of our economic research um, basically empowers uh, elites. A second area of further research uh, stimulated by Randy's book is on the identification of political capitalism so that we can then better understand the factors leading to it. For example, while we better understand political capitalism and how it operates in particular circumstances, we're still largely in the dark as the specific factors that allow for more or less political capitalism. Is Denmark under political capitalism? Sure, maybe in some instances, but we, I think largely probably uh, not. Australia, Botswana, West Virginia, Delaware, Mississippi. 
once we have a better idea of which governments have the political and economic elite cooperating for their mutual benefit, we'll be able to better understand what drives or exacerbates the tendencies towards political capitalism that Randy lays out in the book. Here are several ideas that occurred to me while reading the book that could be tested through data or case studies. On page 214, Randy says that the growth of the regulatory state seems to be unavoidable byproduct of capitalism. Um, I've written a bit on the Dutch uh, Administrative Burden Reduction Program, where the Netherlands, you know, instituted a plan uh, that they reduced the, uh, co the direct cost of regulations by about 25% over four years. Is that a sign that uh, the Netherlands is not regulatory, uh, it's not political capitalism? Is it just a one-off and doesn't say anything about the whole system? Uh, why, how was that able to happen? I can't imagine that happening in the US. Um, what role does higher education play? If we're gonna talk about elites, we have to talk about higher education. Um, just as a matter of oculally squares, I'm gonna say oh, West Virginia is uh, uh, political capitalism. One reason I think is the case, we have one law school. Everybody went to school with one another. The courts, the legislature. Uh, in fact, our, we, we just got rid of all of our Supreme Court, impeached our entire Supreme Court. Who did we, the governor, appoint to fill out a term on the Supreme Court? The, sec the, the, the um, Speaker of the House. So um, if West Virginia is engaged in more political capitalism than Ohio, one reason might be the fact that even though on per capita terms, it has roughly the same number of law schools. The fact that there's only one law school in the state means that it was easier to make those connections that are important to political capitalism. Uh, political capitalism helps to explain why elites like occupational licensure and accreditation. While Harvard certainly doesn't need accreditation to ensure quality, accreditation is needed to ensure the, the uh, status quo in terms of connections and relationships and uh, barriers to disruptions that might undermine those connections. Uh, what role does legislature size play with respect to political capitalism? Does New Hampshire have less political capitalism because its legislative districts are so small? If so, there's a cost being left out when we evaluate legislature size. Um, what role does TBU and interjurisdictional competition play in keeping political capitalism at bay. Much like Randy, uh, I think the growth of government started long, long before the things that most people point out to. Uh, Randy's done a lot of work on the growth of government in the US context. Uh, certainly, uh, whether it's progressive ideas, but even before that, Mon v, v Illinois, uh, as, as pointed out uh, by, by Kerry Anderson, um, is, are certainly important, uh, and so, was the U.S. under a form of political capitalism in the 19th century? Uh, if not, does that say something about the role that the frontier and the formation of new states and territories played in keeping some of political capitalism at bay? Maybe interjurisdictional competition does uh, that today. Uh, and if that's the case, then we should be even more concerned than we might have always been about things like uh, Basel II regulations, exit taxes, international labor, regulatory agreements, and other international agreements. These may be tools that elites uh, across country use uh, um, to further their, uh, and deepen their power. Uh, a final idea raised by Randy's excellent book is related, uh, he pointed out the transitional gains trap. Um, I just want to make the case that if what Randy says is true about the transitional gains trap, uh, it leading to even greater rent extraction, this suggests an actual good use for the precautionary principle, uh, which is if, if all that, uh, any sort of transitional gains create further rent extraction, even you have to have a super, super optimistic case that the thing that is being done by government in creating the transitional gains is gonna do an enormous amount of good because otherwise it's a perpetual uh, case of rent ex uh, extraction. Um, and the last thing I'll say before handing over to Chris is if any of you do experimentalist, uh, experimental economics, 
given the probably, what, hundreds of papers testing uh, rent dissipation, if you don't try to endogenize the power to create rent in an experiment and highlight what Randy insightfully points out in the book about why we shouldn't see over dissipation, uh, you're not picking up $20 bills. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, Randy develops a unified theory of political capitalism as a distinct system of economic organization. And in doing so, he makes important contributions to comparative economic systems, uh, to uh, the literature on uh, the varieties of capitalism, uh, to the literature on public choice, and to constitutional political economy. Uh, as Josh touched upon, his book has the potential to serve as a foundation for an entire research program on the nature and consequences of political capitalism and uh, for exploring potential solutions to the negative consequences of this system. Uh, in my brief time today, I would like to build on Randy's insight in the concluding chapter, it's on page 252, uh, that all economic systems are ultimately mixed systems. Uh, and I would like to discuss some of the implications in the context of the notion of the minimal state. To the extent that capitalism requires the existence of the state, even a minimal state, it also requires some degree of political capitalism. Cronyism is inherent in state activities, so where the state exists, so too does political capitalism. The question is not whether political capitalism exists or whether there is a tendency for political capitalism to emerge, but instead the magnitude of capitalism and political cap capitalism given the existence of the state as its very cause. In discussing the minimal state, the analogy of a referee is often employed. The idea is that the referee stands outside of the game and serves purely as an enforcer of predetermined rules. As the enforcer of these rules, a referee is not an active player in the game and does not intervene to shape outcomes. Those who embrace this analogy typically con conclude that if the state remains purely protective, like the hypothetical referee, political capitalism will be a non-issue because players in the game will have no incentive to curry government favor since the referee cannot influence outcomes. It is my contention that there are two reasons why government can never be limited to the role of a referee that stands entirely outside the game it is tasked with overseeing. First, even the minimal protective state requires resources in order to operate. This requires the government to intervene in private economic life to extract resources. Second, the minimal protective state must also have discretion to deal with circumstances that are unforeseen at the time it is, a gra it is granted its initial powers. By modeling the state as an exogenous referee that remains entirely outside of the economic system, advocates of a minimal state understate or entirely neglect these realities. Despite the use of the term minimal to describe the core functions of the protective state, in reality it, it contains significant space for the emergence and operation of political capitalism as described by Randy. I would like to briefly discuss the US military sector as one illustration of how political capitalism can infect supposedly minimal protective state functions. I believe that this is an insightful example for two reasons. First, Randy only makes brief mention of the military industrial complex in the concluding chapter on page 267, so it deserves a deeper consideration. Second and related, the US military sector influences nearly all aspects of the US economy and represents peak political capitalism. This brief case study illustrates that even if government was limited to providing minimal protective functions, political capitalism would still be alive and rampant. What is the nature of the US military sector? The US military sector is a prime example of what Don Lavoie called non-comprehensive planning, which is characterized by tight, institutionalized relationships between private firms and a state apparatus which governs the relationship and hence the profitability of firms through bureaucratic rules and mandates. The defense sector's private public arrangements are, are more reminiscent of, the, uh, reminiscent of those that characterize the fascist economic systems that Randy described so well in chapter two. Certainly when compared to the competitive private markets, which he uh, goes into detail as being uh, at the foundation of market capitalism. In the defense sector, there's private ownership over the means of production, but the evolution and actions of private owners are dictated by government mandates which authorize certain behaviors and prevent others. In order to be profitable, firms must satisfy their political masters. They can do so either by submitting to political dictates or by influencing those orders in a manner which ensures their success. This arrangement, which fits perfectly with Randy's description of political capitalism, creates unique incentives for both public and private interests. 
First, consider the private in incentives at work in the military sector. The U.S. military sector is characterized by a few dominant firms and then numerous smaller firms which constitute the periphery of the industry. The profitability of these firms to varying degrees depends on political contracts. Therefore, these firms invest significant resources in establishing, establishing maintaining, and expanding th their relationship with those in government. Firms do this in two ways. The first is through lobbying and rent-seeking. Randy provides a detailed and insightful discussion of the economic foundations of consequences and consequences of rent-seeking in Chapter 5, so I won't say anything else about that. Second, firms take advantage of the revolving door, which refers to the back-and-forth movement of personnel between government and the private sector. Former government employees possess unique knowledge of both the technical aspects of military procurement and of the political aspects of government. This unique knowledge gives private firms an advantage in securing rents. Randy doesn't uh, discuss the idea of the revolving door in detail, but it is a natural extension of the ideas of regulatory capture and rent-seeking, which he does discuss as part of the foundations of political capitalism. Military actors are not passive pawns in the military sector entanglement and work to influence the military sector and private firms for their own benefit. An existing public choice literature focuses on the economics of bureaucracy. Among other things, the, this literature highlights the size of bureaus, both in terms of the bureaucrats employed and budget size, as being central to influencing policy. This creates two incentives. The first is mission creep, whereby the scope and scale of the portfolio of activities undertaken tends to increase over time. This expansion allows for the justification of greater resources and staff. The second is the incentive to spend resources on observable outputs. In the absence of profit to demonstrate effectiveness, bureaus signal their importance by producing outputs which are visible and measurable. This creates the incentive to spend even if spending is wasteful, a tendency that is prevalent in the U.S. military sector for anyone that has followed the recent news about the audit of the Department of Defense. Strengthening these incentives is a dysfunctional internal accountability mechanism for tracking spending on d of defense-related resources. Together, this environment creates an environment that is ripe for political capitalism. One common manifestation of, of military-related political capitalism is for elected officials to channel military funds to private firms and labor unions in their home states. This often leads to the production of goods and services that even from the perspective of those who are U.S. military leaders are wasteful and unnecessary for national defense in any reasonable sense of the term. Nonetheless, elected officials actively pursue these resource allocations because it delivers funds, much of which are paid by other taxpayers to their constituents. Private firms are aware of these incentives facing elected officials and actively structure their operations to take advantage of the situation. One example of this logic is Lockheed Martin's F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, whose production is spread over 45 states. By strategically allocating the production of aircraft across geographic space, Lockheed Martin has created a too-big-to-fail scenario where elected officials have a vested in interest in the continuation of the project. While private firms engage in rent-seeking, political actors who control defense-related resource resources engage in rent extraction, an idea which Randy details in Chapter 6. The U.S. government's monopoly over defense provision creates property rights for political gatekeepers who control the flow of funds and make decisions regarding contracts with private firms. These gatekeepers can extract rents from private defense firms who are dependent on government funding. For example, the House Subcommittee on Defense, which is a permanent subcommittee of the United States House Committee on Appropriations, controls the flow of military-related military uh, funding excuse me, and is therefore crucial uh, and central to the profitability of private defense firms. As Peter Schweitzer in his book Extortion, a book that Randy relies on uh, as for examples throughout his book Political Capitalism, as Schweitzer notes, the final report of this subcommittee is, quote, the sort of document that can make or break the programs of defense contractors, both large and small, end quote. This control over the budget allows the gatekeepers to seek favors from firms who are incentivized to comply in order to survive and prosper. Finally, the government is also subject to the aforementioned logic of the revolving door, which is a core feature of the military sector. Government bureaus need people to create and enforce regulations and to make decisions regarding resource allocations to private firms. Those who have gained human capital in the private defense sector are well suited for this role since they have firsthand knowledge of the operations and capabilities of private firms, as well as an understanding of the broader interplay between private and public actors in the sector. 
Together, the incentives facing private firms and government actors in the military sector create a hotbed for political capitalism. The foundations and operation of the industry is based on institutionalized political relationships, favors, corruption, and privilege. In this setting, a small elite are able to determine both resource allocations and, and policies that benefit them and their cronies at the expense of the masses. In conclusion, most discussions of what Randy calls political capitalism take a basic or minimal set of state functions as given and then ask whether there is a tendency for capitalism to devolve into political capitalism. This neglects the fact that the minimal protective state is an inherently political capitalistic entity. This is not due to the number of the functions carried out by government, but rather because the state is the very fundamental cause of political capitalism. So where does this leave us? In conclusion, I'd like to discuss three potential modes of response to the points I've raised. The first response is what I call the Jedi mind trick. <coughs> this involves pretending that there is no tension via assumption. This is the preferred response by many economists and political scientists, as indicated by their treatments of state-provided defense, which is typically modeled as a pure public good provided in optimal quantities and qualities by a benevolent state. The burden on those who adopt this mode of response is to come with terms with the fact that they are unable to say anything about the real world when it comes to matters of state-provided defense because they are operating under severe delusions regarding the nature of defense as an economic good and the reality of how the state operates in practice. The second mode of response is what we might call bite the bullet. This involves accepting that political capitalism is inherent to differing degrees in all state activities, including the functions of the minimal state. This mode of response requires a more nuanced analysis of political capitalism. This position would need to admit that not all political capitalism is bad. From this perspective, what we might call foundational political capitalism is beneficial and even desirable because it allows the protective state to operate and provide the foundation for a market capitalistic system. The burden on those who adopt this mode of response is to develop a general theory of what we might call foundational cronyism and to identify the mechanisms that limit the system from devolving into full-blown political capitalism. Randy touches on some potential mechanisms in the concluding chapter, but much work remains to be done. Finally, one might adopt what we might call a root cause mode of response, which is grounded in two arguments. First, political capitalism is a result of state action, and wherever the state exists, so too will political capitalism. Second, political capitalism cannot be sufficiently constrained through state-provided and enforced rules, which results in a genuine threat to the foundations of market capitalism in a free society. This mode of response holds that the only way to resolve the issue is to remove the root cause, the state. The burden on those who select this mode of response is to make a convincing case that the activities of the protective state can be provided through alternatives that do not rely on a central monopolistic state apparatus. No matter what mode of response one embraces, Randy's book provides crucial foundations for understanding the conceptual and practical nuances of political capitalism as a distinct economic system and what this means for human prosperity and flourishing. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for letting me be a part of this conversation. So um, let me just say right off the bat that I really liked this book very much. You know, in the age of Trump and, and China Inc., uh, Foxconn and Amazon HQ2, I think that this could not be more timely, and yet I have a feeling it's going to be timeless. I think we're going to be talking about inciting this work for years to come. Uh, so in political capitalism, Holcomb combines a number of strands of existing research. Uh, he combines elite theory and public choice theory, especially rent-seeking, uh, and transactions cost economics. Tying each of these together, he forms, I think, a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. So what he does is he describes a phenomenon in which economic elites those who face comparatively lower transactions costs, cooperate with political elites. So in this exchange, uh, which is mutually beneficial for them, but corrosive for both democracy and free enterprise, um, and, and ultimately imposes costs on everyone else. So, so I'd like to make three points. First, I'd point out that this work is in the best tradition of economics, the mainline tradition, as Pete Becky and I refer to it, in that it focuses on exchange and the institutions within which exchange takes place. This is, as James Buchanan might put it, what economists should do. I think that Buchanan will also have appreciated that Randy is permitting intellectual exchange here between different schools of thought. About 40 years ago, in a tribute to Hayek, Buchanan claimed that, quote, the diverse approaches of intersecting schools must be the bases for conciliation, not conflict. 
we must carry the property rights, law and economics, public choice, Austrian subjectivist approaches, and marry them together. So in many ways, what I think Randy has done with this book is exactly that. Second, I'd like to demonstrate exactly how relevant I think this work is today. So Randy asserts that political capitalism is an economic and political system in which the economic and political elite cooperate for their mutual benefit. There again is that idea of exchange. So this idea, I think, is quite close to Buchanan's notion of politics as exchange. It's also quite similar to clientelism, uh, identified by the political scientist James Q. Wilson as the type of politics which reigns when the costs of policy are diffused while the benefits are concentrated, basically Olsonian um, logic of collective action type um, politics. Um, but what's interesting is Holcomb's exchange came to mind as I read Governor Cuomo's uh, rather defensive op-ed on the Amazon HQ2 subsidies. So in the very first line, um, he describes the subsidy as a transaction, and he asserts that the Amazon transaction is an historic transformative moment for the entire New York City region, end quote. And the rest of the piece, um, the governor goes on to refer to the Amazon deal in terms that I think would be quite familiar uh, to Holcomb's account of political capitalism. Finally, I'd like to applaud Randy for highlighting something that I think is often neglected in the rent-seeking literature, and it's something that he's actually helped me better understand. Uh, so on page 100, he notes that, quote, rent creators have no incentive to create a contest in which the rents are dissipated, end quote. Randy helpfully goes on to remind us that rent-seeking contests are not exogenously given. So these are things that are created by policymakers, and policymakers have, quote, an incentive to prevent dissipation so they can have a larger surplus available to split among themselves. I'd suggest two explanations for why this uh, insight has often been neglected. First, I blame the rent-seeking contest success function. So this is what grew out of Tullock's extremely influential 1980 chapter, Efficient Rent-Seeking. So this contest function is useful in many respects. Uh, it helps us to parameterize rent-seeking and the factors that might affect the size of losses. So for example, it's from this function that we understand and are able to really appreciate how the number of rent seekers, the returns to scale in rent seeking, and the degrees to which contests are biased one way or another affect the total losses. But one problem with this success function is that payments or bids from rent seekers to rent creators increase the odds of winning. But lost in the math is the fact that these payments are often just transfers from the rent seekers to rent creators. And this puts us right back in the pre-1967 understanding of the welfare costs of tariffs, monopolies, and thefts. In other words, it's just a transfer. So I think Randy is really uh, right here to point out that rent seeking, true rent-seeking dissipation is something different. It's not a transfer from those seeking rents to those um, who are handing them out. And policymakers have an incentive to try to diminish uh, the amount of total true losses because they really want it to be a true transfer. Um, so I think the second reason why we have often neglected the fact that policymakers have an incentive to minimize rent-seeking losses um, is that opponents of rent-seeking, myself included, uh, find it so repugnant um, that we're sometimes guilty of overstating the economic costs of rent-seeking. Uh, so building on a theme that I develop in a forthcoming Public Choice article, that's actually in a special issue that both Randy and I uh, and Josh contribute to, let me suggest that even when social costs are small, we may still oppose rent-seeking on other grounds. This is because there's a, often a trade-off between extremely costly rent-seeking contests on the one hand and extremely inequitable allocations of favor on the other. Randy's work highlights this exactly. Economic and political elite have an incentive to ensure that there are high barriers to entry in rent-seeking so that they can split the surplus between themselves. This minimizes social rent-seeking costs, but it ensures that favor is inequitably allocated toward the elite. This is a gross injustice. So in, the, in uh, my forthcoming public choice paper, I suggest a number of other ways that favor is inequitably allocated. Uh, often it goes to certain tribes, races, genders, um, to the politically correct, to those who have good Baptist cover stories in the terminology of bootleggers and Baptists from Bruce Yandel. Uh, so what I would suggest is that I, I'd like to see scholars of rent-seeking spend a little less time thinking about the social costs of rent-seeking in those narrow economic terms in terms of uh, you know, the, um, the waste uh, generated in seeking favor, and a little more time thinking about the philosophical inequities involved, um, because there really are, you know, significant philosophical problems with favor that's allocated arbitrarily um, or in some way that's, that's uncontestable. So Randy's book is a great first step in that direction. Uh, overall, again, I, would, I highly commend this book. Um, it is, could not be more relevant to this time and this place and I think it helps us understand what exactly is going on in, the, in today's world. Thank you again, Randy, for your book.
Would you like to respond to any of your panelists before you go open for Q&A? Not, not directly. I really appreciate the comments and the very flattering comments on all, all the cases. So I, I really don't have a, a direct response. Chris, I thought, uh, I mean, you're talking about the military-industrial complex. I mean, that's a great uh, example of political capitalism. I mean, it has to be because you got the political and economic elite who are working outside of markets, so a great application. Uh, but, but let me run an anecdote across uh, to you, and um, and I really don't know what to think about this myself, but um, I've, I've gone over to the Republic of Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, um, uh, several times. Uh, and you may know that, um, I can't remember when Shakashvili was elected, 2004, somewhere around there. Um, before uh, uh, Georgia, it, uh, at the beginning of the, the 21st century, had one of the most corrupt governments in the world. Uh, and they elected a new president, Mikhail Saakashvili, who cleaned up corruption by all accounts. I don't know of anybody who really disputes that. Um, and I asked one of my Georgian friends, I mean, how did he do that? And the simple answer he gave was he got rid of all regulation. Because if you don't have any regulation, you don't have corruption. Because the reason you have corruption is people are bribing the government to get around regulations. Now, that might be an overly simplistic <laughs> answer. So, I mean, I'm not 100%. So I'm, I'm not telling you this as, as some truth. But one thing it does suggest is that uh, not all activities of government are equal. And I think, I mean, you do a, uh, did a great job in your talk about pointing out the, the perils of the defense industry. Uh, and I think th the same thing is true the, uh, of regulation. If we, um, if we uh, uh, divide up government, um, Buchanan talked about the, the protective state and the productive state. If we divide it up a little differently and talk about the productive state and the regulatory state, I think there's a lot more harm that's done through the regulatory state than through the productive state. And if you think about the cronyism and that sort of thing, you in a lot of big government countries like in Scandinavia, you don't see that, that same extent of political capitalism as you see in a lot of countries that have smaller governments. And I think it, the regulatory state is especially pernicious in that regard. So uh, I thank you for your comments. I really, I'm, that, I mean my comment really is thank you and I'll just pass along that anecdote. Great. Well, in addition to some of the readings and further readings mentioned today, I also want to uh, mention kind of digging deeper into, into Randy's research. Uh, there's a wealth of stuff there. There's also a forthcoming special issue in Public Choice that's edited by Matt Mitchell on rent-seeking. And Matt, Randy, and Josh are featured in it as well. So if you want to dig deeper into this topic, look out for that. Um, next semester, we will begin our our um, semester with a book panel with Paul Dragos Alajika's book on public entrepreneurship, citizenship, and self-governance. That's going to be on January 21st, uh, so come back for that. And with that, we have wrapped up the semester. Uh, and let's please thank Randy, Josh, and Chris. <laughs>